Hello and welcome back to uh, your Christmas special of TF. Uh, it's another um, all Skype episode uh, with us scattered to the four corners of the world, or again, in Nate's case, his house in South London. I am Riley. You may remember me from every previous episode of this show. And we are joined by uh, Hussein in the weird Twin Peaks town. Hello. Everything is normal here. Everything's fine. <laughs> I'm doing okay. Uh, Nate down in Peckham. Hello. How's it going? Uh, returning champion, Wendy Liu. Hello again. And uh, new champion, uh, Trevor, on uh, Twitter, at Ricky Rawls, host of the Champagne Sharks podcast. How you doing, Trev? Oh, pretty good, man. How you feeling? Uh, not so bad, not so bad. I've been putting off watching the film Sorry to Bother You for a long time. I saw it today, and who boy am I glad I did. That film rules. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I wish I saw it a second time. I have not had a chance to see it yet it's on uh blu-ray dvd and all that good stuff now right oh yeah so you can you can see all of these sort of um trenchant critiques of capitalism and breathtaking high definition it also just opened in the uk so like i had to find a way to not spoil the, the ending for like four and a half months because it had been out in the u.s so i just never got a chance to see it before i moved here and then it's like nope you have to wait till december and or pirate it online, which I'm sure no one, none of us would ever do. No, of course that would be illegal. Would and you, as would, and sorry to bother you, is all about respecting property. I mean, would you ever download a car or a wife? I don't think you would. <laughs> so why would you download a movie? Yeah. So what we're doing today is a little bit different from the usual episodes of Trash Future, where usually we sort of talk about stuff to make fun of it or stuff we didn't like, or um. Or, or otherwise sort of trash things. It's sort of there in the title. I think this might be the first episode where we talk about something that we really liked. This is this is new for us. Yeah, I'll definitely say that um, I saw the movie two weeks ago and uh, was very excited to get a chance to talk about it. But also I was like, um, I wonder where we're going to go with it and critiquing this on the show. If it's going to be, is it a movie review or is it uh, us hollering about capitalism in more and more abstracted forms? So interested in seeing how people reacted. Yeah, and you can place your bets now on the Trash Future app uh, of how this, how where this episode's going to go. Um, any case, so uh, I've got sort of a, a plot summary here in front of me. But um, I say, why don't we sort of go around and say the quick one sentence summary of what we thought. I'll go last. I throw it open to you guys. Hussein, you go first. I mean, I, I haven't actually finished watching the movie because it took me a long time. It took me like a while to actually be able to download it, right? So I've seen, I've seen like a good maybe 30, 45 minutes. So I will say incomplete, but the 30, 45 minutes I did see, pretty good. Um, I like the aesthetic. The aesthetic was pretty fun. And I like the way that, um, yeah, I like the way that like the initial issues are addressed. I mean, we can talk about this more later. I just don't want to give yeah. away too much. Or more importantly, I don't want to say something that ends up being untrue or <laughs> ends up like being unraveled at the end of the movie. So I'm going to be very useful in this episode. Wait, wait, wait. So are yeah. we not allowed to spoil it because Hussein hasn't no, no, no. seen it? No, it's fine. No, it's fine. It's, it's fine. It's, 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 like, it's, like you, it's like you think I haven't read the Wikipedia summary already. Oh, okay. But I mean, there are so many things that happen that I swear that if, if you hadn't seen the end of the movie, you would think we were making it up to screw with you. Because like you were like, oh no, there's no way that there's horse dicks involved. Like, oh no, there definitely are. <laughs> Look, all all I heard was if we're talking just like a gentleman note about movies. Did you know that in the Aquaman movie there is an octopus drummer? 
I was very shocked by that, and I'm still processing that. I don't think that anything will be able to like supersede that. At the yeah, moment. yeah, yeah. I saw that. It was it was awesome. I think the octopus <laughs> drummer need, needed more needed more airtime. I'm very. This is I'm very this is upset. more. This is more of my theory of the grand unified uh, movie cinematic universe, which is eventually that octopus drummer is going to get his own film. <laughs> he needs one. If anyone needs one, is that octopus drummer? <laughs> That's the episode title: Octopus Drummer. A sorry to bother you summary cast. Um, yeah. So what? So sorry to bother you, uh, Wendy. What was your you? No, you've been talking about this movie in glowing terms for a while. Yes. So I first saw it um, actually in the U.S. and then I it honestly kind of changed my life, <laughs> which sounds a bit hyperbolic, hyperbolic, but like every, so I think before I'd watched the film, I put off watching it for a while and I'd been writing a lot, thinking a lot about organizing the tech industry and then seeing that film kind of like crystallized it for me because I mean, we'll talk more, more about this later, but a lot of what's wrong with the world depicted in the film feels very similar to what's going on in our world with what the tech companies are doing, right? And it's like, if you look at the possibilities for resistance in our world, and the way it's dramatized in the film, it does like it does feel like there's a lot of um, a lot of a lot of parallels that could be really useful in inspiring people. So I saw it, and then I saw it a second time, and then I saw the interview with uh, Boots Riley when he was here in London. So I've been I've been uh, you know pretty inspired by the film. I have a lot of a lot of things I wanted to say about it. Nice, uh, Trev. I thought the film was very good as far as uh, being a metaphor for. For capitalism and organizing and race, I only wish it was a little bit longer. I think it could have stood. I feel like in this day where so many movies are too long, it's rare where I see a movie and I'm like, you know, you could have added like 20 minutes on that. Like there are some things I would have liked to have had a chance to kind of breathe. It's a really good movie, but it kind of goes at kind of like a breakneck pace once it starts going. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I get that. Yeah. I think it's I, I almost might think like it's 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 breakneck pace sort of it's it's sort of evocative of the sort of the life of endless movement that we're all forced to live and uh, to live um, as we're sort of constantly monitored and evaluated by like different algorithms. That's kind of how I felt about about the pace. That's fair because you don't have a lot of chance to unpack a lot of the stuff you're seeing because, like you said, it keeps uh, the brutal march of progress is very much depicted in that film yeah uh nate you want to you want to give your your two cent summary up top yeah for sure so um i really enjoyed this movie i i found it to be i i don't know like i i I really enjoyed it i very rarely felt as though i could guess what was going to happen next which i mean for for movies you know when it's sort of like mass release movies like more or less unless there's a very very explicit like there's a twist in the plot like normally it's pretty easy to guess what's going to happen next um so i really enjoyed that there were definitely some things where i was like wow he really went there and i really appreciated it there are a few things we'll get into in, in talking about certain aspects where i was like i'm really glad this was a movie made by somebody who is an, who's a, a far left activist who's been in that space for a long time everything from the critique of some in some of the plot points to like literally the sound design when they're getting hit by batons in a protest like you can tell boots riley is been in that situation before just by the way that it was done um my big critique that i would just say that doesn't doesn't have to get get gone into really heavily in detail but that i do feel like applies is that i felt like tessa thompson's character detroit uh basically only exists as a barometer for whether or not you're supposed to like what cash is doing 
Um, and so I kind of wish that there was more, there was just that she had a little bit more agency as a character. But uh, I thought it was really, I, I, I thought it was a really, really unique movie and I was really happy to see it succeed as it has. Uh, I more or less agree with everything you say, Nate, except I, come on, the horse dick thing, like that's very formulaic. I saw that coming from a mile away. Yes, I just assume there's going to be horse dicks in any movie that I watch. And so often I am I wrong, but this time I was not wrong. <laughs> Owned yet again by Hollywood's fear of the horse dick. All right, so let's let's crack on. So, Sorry to Bother You is uh, set in a kind of alternate present version of Oakland, California. It's about Cassius or Cash Green, a, a, a black man who lives with his fiance Detroit, uh, who accepts a job at a telemarketing agency called Regal View. And the setting is kind of our world, but also not. So like the most popular show is called I Just Got the Shit Kicked Out of Me. The biggest company is called Worry Free. And we'll get into that as we progress through the story. And the whole thing feels to me kind of like magical realism. Like if, if Gabriel Garcia Marquez was trying to like write a story about a, a, a far left story about a call center worker that sort of accidentally changes the world um, or not accidentally even, um, then this is kind of the, the setting I think he would construct. And what do you guys think about the setting? Op- open to the floor. Um, yeah, can I can I make some points about Worry Free? So I thought, I mean, if yeah. you look at the billboards that um, Worry Free has scattered throughout the, f- the film, and it's amazing because a lot of the, these are kind of in the background. I didn't even notice some of them until I watched the second time. Um, the whole world is supposed to be one where Worry Free kind of just reigns supreme. And it's this one company that is obviously the wealthiest and is like expanding into all these different sectors and is kind of dominating the entire economy, really. Um, and in that sense, you can really see it as kind of like this uh, this amalgamation of a bunch of these different tech companies like Amazon, most obviously Apple and a bunch of others. Um, and it's, it's, it's like really amazing the way the film just captures the, the kind of uh, banality of this, this huge um, monolithic corporation kind of like blending into the background, just fades in the background. You just see ads about it and it just feels normal. And I mean, that is very much our world today, but um, it kind of goes over the top a little bit and just like to the point where it... You know, you you know that it's satire, but there's like this really like uncomfortable kind of um, un- uncanny feeling where you're like it's satire, but it's also just exactly real. Um, so that that was like that was kind of hard to watch, but also it did make it really fun to watch. I definitely agree with you, especially um, in things like the viral video from Cash getting hit in the head with a can later on. I know that like without giving up way too much of the plot, the idea of the viral video becoming a thing that like that's his only. You know that 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 leads to the the woman who made the video basically getting a TV show. Like the idea that 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 dumb things have this strange power over day to day society, but people have no real power in their lives. Um, that that I thought was 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 well done. It was obviously over the top, but it was also like Wendy said, it was so uncannily close that you you, you not, there are a few things in this movie where you're like, okay, that's implausible, but a lot of it is is absolutely plausible, and that's I think the thing that makes you so like makes you kind of had this queasy feeling throughout. Yeah, I mean, I would almost call it um, like science fiction or like speculative fiction in the sense that it draws on tendencies that are already present in everyday reality and kind of extrapolates them into the future. Even if it's set in, you know, the present, it really does feel like taking tendencies um, such as like that of corporations to agglomerate and become more powerful and just sort of projects them and envisions what things would be like in maybe a few years. Um, and that's that's why you know that's why it's terrifying, but also just like you watch it, and you're like, yeah, this this makes sense. Like it feels kind of plausible, even though it's so unrealistic. Yeah. So let's um. So they th- that's that's this this setting. This sort of it's just to the side of our reality, but it's really sort of just expands on those tendencies. 
So the first scene, the, the opening scenes of the movie, uh, Cassius is in a job interview and he's trying to get hired at Regal View, which is a telemarketing company. And he's holding a couple of trophies in his CV. And essentially the boss says, look, I know you made up your CV. I know you just commissioned yourself that trophy. That's actually kind of fun. We don't care about your qualifications. Just sit down in the seat and stick to the script. So what do we think about his job initially? Um, One thing I wanted to say, just to mm-hmm. kind of back up to the um, last thing a little bit the the exaggeration that happened with the um movie in the setting i felt like that company what's the name of that company that they had the commercial for uh worry free worry free the one thing that one area where i thought the exaggeration didn't work like i like the exaggeration with everything else like by exaggerating it you kind of help illustrate some of the absurdity but the worry free i think they made it look in a way where it's like who on earth would ever want to work there like they kind of tipped their hand that it's like a miserable deal but a lot of times if you polish up that same deal and make it look like perks like we work and mm. all these different things a lot of people think you know oh wow this is a great deal that i'm getting so i like the exaggeration in um every aspect except for that worry-free uh commercial i, I wish they kind of did it more like one of the real life versions of those things where the audience can kind of see why it would look like a kind of Faustian bargain, like why anybody would be enticed um, to go there. But going to Cash's workplace, that was, I think, a place where it was a little too, that's a good place where they could have gone a little bit more outrageous, I thought. Hmm. So what's going on in Cash's workplace? Well, I mean, I would say that the the the, it, the kind of the banality, the horrible decor, the lack of windows, the harsh light, the fact that like he's all day they're just basically getting told to fuck off when they're having to call these people, like that was really so dead on as far as like terrible job environments go. That I, I felt that it was strange because you have this departure between the what you just described, the like the the absurd world where. The, the the volunteer slavery company makes you wear yellow scrubs and live on bunk beds. But then you go to this office environment that very much resembles sh- bad office jobs. Yeah. That's, the, that, that's, that's it's, it's right on. Like, the, I mean, I've worked in jobs that had similar environments. Yeah, it wasn't very exaggerated at all. So it was kind of interesting what the things they chose to kind of exaggerate into absurdity and then the things they kind of presented uh, straight on. It, it made it, the movie, the watching experience a little bit kind of jarring. But yeah, um, I would agree. Yeah. Yeah, actually, so I, I really agree with the point um, that Worry Free is depicted as this terrible company where you would never want to work, which isn't really the case with a lot of these tech companies right now, right? And uh, But I think the way that the film kind of answers that is the, um, the way they contrast uh, the power collar job and like, you know, the, the regular shitty, like, no window office job. And I think that's where, like, even though it's not within Worry Free, it's still within this, like, um, this arm of the right because like they're they're um they're making they're making phone calls for worry free to benefit worry free and so that is an illustration of how you do have this like bifurcation of jobs you have the really terrible jobs that are not glamorous and nobody wants to work in and then you have the power caller kind of job where you're treated as a talent you're you're you know you're given all these massive perks and i think that's like that is like a really nice critique of what actually happens right now in like in in the wider economy yeah. So I think let's we've we've actually spoken quite a bit about worry free and what happens there is that I think let let's let's go into into worry free a little more cuz we haven't actually said what they offer 
which is basically you go to work for them forever, uh, for your entire life. You don't get paid. You basically become a slave. Um, but you are then get you have no bills, you have no costs, you get th- you get fed, and you get a bunk bed and some ridiculous clothes to wear. And throughout the um, throughout the movie, interestingly, uh, they sort of talk a little more about worry free, which is oh, worry free, the company that saved America, uh, worry free, the company that has been able to make a car at twenty percent of the normal cost. And I was thinking, well, of course they've been able to make a car at twenty percent of the normal cost because they're using slave labor. But also, you remember in the very beginning when um, when Cassius is talking to his uncle, he he's, it's kind of a, a kind of a gag scene where he tries to like uh, make fun of landlord. He basically talks about landlords as a parasite class, and his his, his landlord's like, "Cash, I'm your uncle." Uh, but his his uncle uh, is Terry Crews's character. Basically, is like, "Hey, that that worry free sounds pretty good because the bank is talking about taking his home away." And he's like, "Hey, three hots in a cot. I mean, that's that's not a bad deal." And so, in a way, it's like. You're pre- it would be one thing if it's like these are all just automaton people that somehow have decided to go live in this environment and work for the rest of their lives for nothing. But you're also confronted with a person in a situation that's relatable who's saying the stress I'm under in, in under capitalism has become so great that I'm literally considering giving up my entire life and family to go live in a bunk bed and, and mm. be a slave. And that's a great example of dispossession too, right? And how that functions and how it's you know disguised as a, just like a, a contract with a bank. That tells you how your mortgage works, but really it is just like ultimately dispossession. And that's what drives people to become um, serfs essentially for worry-free. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so this is this this is sort of the the, the omnipresent um, sort of company. And so, but so Cash goes to work initially for uh, for Regal View, and this um, thing we uh, Wendy you mentioned earlier, the power collar is kind of dangled in front of them as, oh, if you do very well for us, then we'll promote you to sort of to power call or whatever that means. And it's not well defined. But, you know, and, and what, it, what it turns out to be is just a very, very luxurious office. But before we get, we get there, um, so in, in the job itself, uh, he's, they are given a, a, a kind of a, a leadership meeting almost from their new uh, team manager, uh, who is essentially like a business inspiration Facebook post, but rendered human. Uh, and I real I don't know about you guys. I really felt that sales leadership bullshit scene, where the manager says, uh, "You need to know when to tag him and when to bag him," and someone just says, uh, "What does that mean?" And he just can't think of a, have any way to explain it because this is what happens. We have a business culture that's run by guys who watched Glenn Gary, Glenn Ross just for the Alec Baldwin monologue at the very beginning, and then zone out for the human drama that occurs the rest of the movie. Um, and the team leader lady says, "We're a team. We're together." But of course, we're not going to pay you more because who needs money anyway? Actually, studies have shown that people prefer social capital. Uh, so what do we think of that scene? It's so close to home as far as bad jobs that I was just like was squirming watching it. Yeah, I, it, it was very close to home for me. Wendy, do you feel familiar with that as well? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it, it feels like um, just like an amazing depiction of the the prevailing ideology under neoliberalism, right? So she actually talks about... she throws around the words capital and labor she's like capital labor like what is that anyway right and just like there is this prevailing idea right now that the old class divisions don't exist anymore and that we exist in a very liminal space where um you know everybody owns capital and like no one is really just labor power and so we're all on the same side and this is something that you really really get within tech companies especially because a lot of the time they'll give people stock and so, you know, you technically own capital and you don't feel like you're just a worker. Um, and yeah, I thought I thought that was brilliant. Just like 
um, trying to get everybody to see themselves as like a, as a family. And, you know, they, they all have the same role within the company and they all should be treated the same way. And it's like trying to gloss over the power imbalance between, you know, her and like the, the other managers, whereas everybody else is just not even getting paid for their work. And the thing with the family thing I found interesting was um, I kind of thought of that movie Office Space and like the flair and like we're just one happy family and 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 wear your flair. And she's like, listen, do you want me to wear the flair or not? Like, just tell me. And he's like, well, do you want to wear the flair? I like to think we're actually think we're a family. And I feel like tech has kind of created a um, a more respectable version of that. Like people wouldn't think of um, a nice office tech job as what jennifer anderson was going through with uh in office space but i know people who have worked for like tech companies and they they'll say the same thing like you know there's there's no cubicles there's just giant tables and everyone's sitting at this thing and there's these uh taco tuesdays and this whole fake um family feel and whatever but then w- one of my friend's companies went um one of my friend's companies went public and after it went public and then it um, started having actual shareholders and quarterly reports, suddenly there's layoffs. And he was saying how it just became like every other shitty job he's ever had, like all the fake um, coolness of the job. Like like there's a bike room. There's a dog day. You can bring the dog in. You know, there's um, Star Trek day, like all this stuff. It just proved to be just bullshit. At the end of the day, it was just. The same bullshit he had in every other company. Um, it went public. There was terrible layoffs, whispers, people being pulled to the side to say, don't tell anybody, but there's layoffs today, but you're safe. But this person's not safe. Now go back and interact with them for the rest of the day. Like, I didn't just tell you that they're a dead man walking and, you know, bullshit like that. Man. And uh, the whole time having to be like, sort of have, a, again, just having a big smile plastered across your face while so you do a climbing wall or whatever. It's, it's, it's the same shit that's been happening. Um, well, I mean, I, f- I feel like you can relate that, you know, as I know you're moving through the plot, Riley, but like, because a similar thing sort of happens, like not necessarily not as much layoffs, but rather like individual success at the expense of other people. Like, that's a thing that happens where, you know, it's, it's a weird uh, when you you start to realize how much of this is intentional in the film to, to sort of, I, I, you know, get across the point that people are basically being hoodwinked into ignoring their own class. And that's what happens to Cash. Mm. I mean, yeah, like, it's fact- my, my sort of like ignorant, I haven't finished watching the movie comment. <laughs> um, <laughs> uh, and, and, and this is why I belong on a film podcast. Um, is that like a lot of it just sounds like a very dark energy Wolf of Wall Street. Like I'll come up, I'll come up with like a smarter take of this eventually. Like one of these episodes comes out probably. But so much of like Wolf of Wall Street was sort of like had these similarities in regards to kind of these weird kind of work, like, you know, working institutions with underlining, like, you know, liberalization of capital tones and um, ignoring, you know, the class conversation that occurred in like that in, in Wolf of Wall Street was sort of like non-existent, but also kind of, it was kind of there, but it was glossed over as being something that you could transcend with. And this movie, at least like from what I saw of it and what I've been hearing about it, it sort of feels as if it's like, it has, it's a critique of like those undertones and like that particular type of genre of cinema, which is, you know, very much like business guy doing business things. Do you know what I mean? Like maybe, maybe yeah, you I can know kind exactly of provide like mean. better terms. 
Well, it's the no one could ever. The thing is, like a lot of people watch American Psycho or Wolf of Wall Street, and they're like, "Damn, what a cool film about a guy with an awesome job and cool suits." Right. And they may all be trying to mount a criticism of capital, but what Sorry to Bother You does is it does it in such a way that no moron could ever watch this movie and be like, "Damn, I got to get myself hit in the head." I think it like I think it I think it like it represents like the absurdity of like living in living in like neo like neoliberalism really well in a way that like other films that have tried to critique it and have almost tried to be like too clever in doing so like have failed. Like I think the simplicity in this story kind of is a lot more powerful in terms of its critique of capitalism. Can I actually suggest like a, like a cinematic parallel? So, and you guys might give a shit for this, but when I was watching it, I thought a lot about the hunger games and um, specifically. So Mark Fisher had this uh, blog post where he wrote about the hunger games and he describes it as this uh, delirious experience where he keeps thinking like, how can I be watching this? How can this be allowed? Because I mean, the hunger games is a fairly strong critique of capitalism, but the thing is it's not, it's not as visible because it's not set in our world. You don't necessarily see it. But the whole point about the hunger games is that it's this world where, these people are made to compete with each other for something that is created just like by the system. And you can see the whole power collar thing in kind of the same light, right? Like the management has created a system where a few people who uh, work harder than their peers, who succeed, who sell more whatever than their peers get promoted to power collar. And it's this hierarchy that's completely imposed from above. And the people who are in it, um, some of them realize that it, it's something that they don't want. But when, when Cash is exposed to it, he's just like, all right, well, here's this hierarchy. I'm going to succeed within it. And the whole message of the Hunger Games is like, you need to get to a point where you realize that this hierarchy, this um, competitive like battle to the death between you and your, your peers is not something you should just accept. It's something you have to refuse. Uh, and so, yeah, I mean, I, I saw this film in kind of the same light. And I just, what I loved about it was how it was in like a very contemporary setting where we look around and we see things that are like very familiar. We see, you know, the modern office job. Um, and like, I thought that was kind of the brilliance of the film. Yeah. And I think the other thing is like, it's in the, in the hunger games, it's this, you know, this big epic rising up and so on of, of people that sort of happens because they rally around a charismatic leader. Um, whereas here, in fact, we'll sort of moving to the next plot point. Uh, we meet squeeze uh, who's played by the walking dead, Stephen Ewan. Um, and he talks about organizing a union for the telemarketers, which is sort of, I guess you could say the main sort of protagonist, almost one of the main sort of protagonistic forces of the film is this union. And he's, and what I noticed, like we're talking about organizing uh, a union at a job that doesn't traditionally find itself unionized uh, as telemarketers are usually sort of casualized temp workers. I was going to uh, add to Wendy's point about the Hunger Games, like, she was saying you guys might uh, give me shit about this, but I, I don't think it's a reach at all because at the end of the day, the Hunger Games is a game show. Like, it's really what it is. It's like a game show, like, on steroids and, you know, mixed with... But I think it's a exploitative type of concept that goes back to, like, gladiatorial, glad, gladiator times, you know, where it's like um, these people are going to fight and they're going to fight for their lives, Um in this case, in the gladiator arenas, the literal lies. But on a regular game show, it's the mortgage or the chance to not be evicted or the chance to finally pay off their uh, student loans or whatever. And I think it's like not a coincidence that there's a game show conceit within the um, within the sorry to bother you because it's kind of like we're so inundated with. Uh, that whole capitalist realism that Mark Fisher talks about that 
we even start turning uh, this horrible struggle into our entertainment. You know, and part of the joy of watching a game show is seeing the people uh, overreact. And, you know, a lot of times when there's like poor people on the game show and they're really doing all these theatrics, it's, it's almost like this kind of uh, class mocking. We get to, we get to like uh, see people like entertain us as they uh, fight for their lives in a way. And I always find it interesting how game shows kind of lend themselves so easily to being good uh, critiques of capitalism where there's like or society where there's like the running man or the the hunger games or any other game show there's a black mirror episode that was called like one million credits or something and i think black i think black mirror has a lot of overrated aspects and problems but i thought that was a good episode about uh the idea of how game shows kind of turn our um they become microcosms of our struggle and get used to uh entertain us and we don't kind of realize that we're trapped in the same kind of thing in real life that we call jobs and stuff so i love that yeah that's i think it's an amazing take um and in a way the workplace becomes a spectacle right so it's not it's not just about like the workplace um as such it's about uh this sort of ideological apparatus and you know it creates a certain reality and um like a very performative reality and it makes it hard to imagine anything outside that um, like you're saying about capitalist realism, yeah. And you can even see that in the way the office is set up, uh, because they have a little light that dings when they make a sale, and then whenever Cash sort of you know, performs well for in front of other people uh, in, at the office, like he and the manager do the, all these exaggerated dances, like he's sort of he's performing how much he's he's winning at this at this job as well. So yeah, the whole thing is just a crazy game show. Um, yeah, isn't it? Isn't that even like a word they use now, like like, like gamify? Yeah. I, I always hear like tech companies talk about we're going to gamify this and gamify that. Yeah. Um, in fact, well, so initially, initially, um, when we talk about the union, uh, 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 Cash is sort of interested in joining it because he's like, well, I'm not doing super well at my job. I'm not making a lot of money. But then he he learns uh, the white voice. Uh, so what is from from an older coworker is like no you can sell you just have to use the white voice so Trev what's the white voice I want to remember Danny Glover's exact description because I thought it was so good um, do you guys remember it like like he said it, not Will Smith white it has to be but like the kind of feeling that your problems are gonna be okay all your bills are gonna be um, met like it was interesting because it wasn't just like. A stylistic thing like, like he made it clear it wasn't just um the deaf comedy jam voice or the um in that, in that simpsons episode where they're making fun of black yeah. comedians and that, <laughs> white you know, people drive like, like this yeah 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 bear, bear, it wasn't bear, bear, just bear. like yeah yeah because oh my god was this true we're so lame like you know it wasn't that it was um it was it was like act like you like exactly it was a mentality like you imagine that you don't have any bills and you never have to worry about whether or not you're going to have a job like basically because I, I agree with you that, that had it been in the hands of a less astute writer it would have been you know haha talk like a white guy white people talk like nerds but instead he basically saying imagine you're the kind of person who has the supreme confidence that you never have to worry about whether whether or not you're going to be closed out by the, by the economy or by the society you yeah, live in. I mean, yeah, yeah. And, and ultimately it's a critique of power, right? Because it, it's not it's not about like, you know, whiteness as this like biological essentialist thing. It's like um, it, you, you're talking like a white person, which means you're talking as if you're someone for whom the economy is made. 
you're talking as if you know you absolutely you yeah. expect to have economic power you expect to just like f- fill in any you know job openings will open up for you you can become a ceo it's like think the world is going to bend itself around you and if you talk like that then you can find you can connect with people you can make um your customers think that that's going to happen for them too if they buy their product buy yeah product. it's not just yeah it's not just optics or stylistic text it's a actual materialist uh, position you know that's well, and the thing is, and this is what I've sort of been thinking about, this thought has sort of been living in the back of my skull, which is that one of the reasons that Britain is in such a dire political state is that our whole system is government by people with uh, this sort of uh, white voice, if you like, like that the, like the, the entirety of the sort of the Oxford Union politics that have sort of, you know, basically made our country shit for so long. Um, it is just David Cameron sort of walking up and sort of blithely announcing that he assumes he'll win the re- referendum, so he does Brexit referendum, so he doesn't really have to try. Of of sort of overconfident columnists just saying, well, I'm sure we'll be in and out of Iraq very quickly. It'll be the history. It'll be the history's easiest war. Or David Davis saying, oh no, the Brexit deal will be history's easiest negotiation. Whatever. Just with the, having having grown up with such unimaginable privilege that and that the world has just handed them so much that they then just assume that all of the problems of the world are going to be very simple for them to solve because from a from a personal point of view you know dave brexit's not that much of a risk for david cameron you know he's still going to get his 25,000 pound shed um but it but it it, it just feels like that le- that kind of sort of the confidence of coddling basically has just created the jacob reese mogs and and so on and, and it's interesting too that, but also the, specifically for sorry to bother you that when you think about cash as managers, they're not the kind of people that he's selling the stuff to. Like his one manager who makes all of like the killing people and bagging, bagging and tagging him and putting them at the morgue. Like he's obviously someone who's kind of lived on the margins, but now has a, has a job that he's good at. But he's, he's got that sort of like, you know, recovering addict intensity about him. And the other people like they're, they're sort of, kind of parodies of a kind of office worker but they're they're no they're not the same as um the character who's played by uh Ar- army hammer mm-hmm. uh the, the the was it the, uh, joe lift i think his name is or the Steve lift. lift something steven lift. Steven lift yeah I, I just picked a white guy <laughs> name and it just i just mm-hmm. just going and going yeah they the, in a way like He's having to affect a voice and a mentality that's even like of a higher class standing than his bosses. And so it's interesting because his bosses aren't the one who told him to do that. Danny Glover's character, who's been like suffering in this world forever, is the one who taught him to do it. This is so this is the the sort of the trick he learns. And and so in doing this, he gets so good that when even when they um the union that we were talking about arranges a sort of wildcat strike and puts their phones down, um what he when he gets taken aside, he thinks he's about to get fired, but actually they say, No, we're gonna make you a power caller. And it's so far it's been unclear to us what this means. It just seems like an arbitrary rank. But you come to realize, and this is kind of where I'll throw to Wendy, that it's sort of just a nice office. And I I feel, uh, Wendy, like you would sort of have a lot a lot to unpack here of just the sort of environment and blithe superiority of the sort of high ranking tech people. Yeah, yeah. I mean, there's 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 so much there. I'll, I'll try to keep this short, but I guess it's the point is that that's a job that doesn't feel like a job. It's something that it feels like a, a lifestyle. It feels like something you've earned. And so he goes up in the elevator, right? And I think the just like the motion of that is 
you know, it's it's not an accident. He's he's been elevated to this higher plane of existence where everybody wears like nice designer suits and there's like champagne that they just like pour over people and you have like an actual uh, you know floor to ceiling windows, um, and and so it doesn't it doesn't feel like he's just a worker, right? And like there's something about that that is so insidious and just really so dangerous. But he really starts to think that this is like his calling, it's his destiny, and he's earned it. So like he's worked really hard. Um, making all these calls and now like this is just something he deserves and so he looks he thinks about you know all of his old colleagues and his even his fiance and he's like well you know maybe if they worked harder they could be where i am instead of thinking like oh wait why why do they pick me like why is it fair that i get this this world of like luxury and plenty while everybody else is down there barely making rent uh and so yeah there's something just like like incredibly real about that scene which uh really made it hard to watch I would also throw in that, I mean, he's got pressure from his family. I mean, he's able in that scene where he takes the job, he's able to give his uncle money to like resolve his issue with his house. He buys a car, he's able to get a nice apartment. But then it it, it very deftly does this where like you can understand where he's coming from. And then you also start to watch him become like in scene by scene, become more poisonous to- towards the people on the lower floors because all of a sudden this becomes his normal. Yeah, there's an amazing montage where he transitions from like apartment to apartment and the apartments get progressively nicer. Like the furniture becomes like more slick and more expensive. And it literally and, falls apart and then regrows. Yeah. Like you actually see it yeah. sort of replace yeah. itself. Yeah, and it's like an, an amazing, like it's a cinematic masterpiece, like those, those scenes. But I mean, what that tells you is just like the once this process is put in motion, once he gets promoted, he's going to keep wanting more and more. The, just by virtue of the way the structure works and all these carrots being dangled in front of him, it's not enough for him to just be like, okay, I'll get promoted once, I'll pay off my mortgage, you know, and I just don't have to live in precarity. Now he's like, no, I just want. Now that he's gone up the corporate ladder, he wants to keep climbing it. I think that is like a great critique of what these systems actually do to people. Um, they start out thinking, oh, I'm just going to work this job just for a bit, but then just like the way the job works, the, the people within it are doing their best to get people to to buy into the system in a way that really like damages their self, themselves. And, and you know, it's also not just a great critique of what those corporations do to their workers, but it's kind of a great critique of how those corporations actually operate um, themselves because the whole point of it, a corporation is just to grow. And there's just this kind of cult of growthism. Like, it doesn't matter how good you're doing. You're always supposed to be doing better than last time. So, like, even with uh, Facebook, it'll be like they pretty much dominate everything. But then the quarterly report will um, happen. And I discovered this when I had a little bit of extra money. And I decided to try to buy a couple of stocks and see if uh, I could have any luck buying stocks. And then... When I had to start following what the company was doing, I started realizing my brain was getting warped and what made it a good company, you know, because you, you would like own a stock and the stock would drop and you had to read why the stock dropped. And then it would say, well, this report came up and Facebook only grew 10%, but, you know, it was supposed to grow 15%. That's what it's projected to grow, like it's user growth. And it's like, how many people in the world are left for it to even... Um, to even get more people like like it's supposed to always be finding more people to uh like pretty soon they're gonna sign up babies it's gonna have them come out the womb well who's saying gonna do them- that what's that who's saying's <laughs> gonna do that <laughs> yeah who's, who's who? well, but also too i mean I, I something you know specifically related to this in the film too is that like if a corporation if for some reason they decide in, in whatever moment of whatever you want to call it self-interest or 
public relations, they decide they want to give their workers a raise, for example, that's going to probably affect their share price. Yeah, exactly. Like, and that's actually going to be received negatively by shareholders and specifically by their board. Oh, and dude. it's entirely possible that their leadership will just get replaced because they're like, no, we're not paying you to fucking pay your workers more. We're paying you to make us money. No, you remember yeah, yeah, this actually, like, this yeah, actually yeah, happened We're paying you once. to grow. Like, like, that's what you're supposed to yeah. do. You're supposed to keep growing. But this, yeah. this whether or not once. there's whether or not Facebook is helping to worsen, you know, ethnic tensions to the point where there's a genocide happening because of information, disinformation shared on Facebook. That doesn't matter. What matters is growth. Yeah. yeah. And, and you see like, that you see. Yeah, go ahead. It's sorry. Not, it's not, sorry. I was going to say, because it's not profit. People think it's about profit, but it's still profitable. That's a crazy thing about when the stock price drops. No one's saying that you're becoming unprofitable. You just didn't grow, which is I think is like amazing that, you know, there's never enough money. Like you're actually making more money than you're spending, which is what you think a business is supposed to be about. Everybody, there's more than enough money to go around, but you didn't grow. You weren't bigger than you were yesterday, so you failed. Yeah, and that's something you can really see in the film as well, because, and I think we'll transition to this soon, but um, Steve Lift, the CEO of Worry Free, he has this like diabolical plan that's going to increase um, increase profits, but also just like grow the company. Uh, and, and the thing is, you wonder like, what is driving this guy? Like his company already has dominance over the whole world, basically. And yet he still is thinking like, how do we make this company grow? How do we keep keep doing things? How do we dominate more and more of the planet? Uh, and it's just like, it, it really, um, there's this line actually that I think, I feel like Riley, you'd really like, because he says um, that everything he's doing is rational. And there you can really, you know, you can think about like, Adorno and Horkheimer's critique of rationality and how capitalism is this very rational system and that this like idea of what is considered rational under capitalism is, is actually pretty horrendous to you know most of us when we if we like care about morals or anything but at the same time it's rational because it's what the system, the system incentivizes. I actually copied down this line uh, that I'll skip ahead sort of to what where it ends up happening because Hussein now is the time to, for you to think hmm are they fucking with me with the end of this film or not. Um, <laughs> But where uh, uh, sort of Cash says to to Lyft, he says, wait, so you're making half human, half horse hybrids to make more money. And Lyft's j- answer is just, yes. I mean, it's just like, it's, yeah, it's, yeah. it's, it's the unicorn poop thing again, isn't it? It's just like in extended yeah. form. <laughs> if someone like said to you a couple of years ago, yeah, the best, like we're making a toy in which kids play with unicorn poop. Um and the unicorns are like unreasonably sexy, but also sort of childlike. So it will make you feel a bit awkward. Like, how would you respond to that? Whereas now it's just like, yeah, okay, fine. All right, cool. Yes, right. Now the, the, the best film of 2018 is a, a, a strong horse cock. Yeah, and like, and, and, and you know, and my, and, my, and my Christmas job up here in the woods is being the social media manager of unicorn poop. So... <laughs> Well, right. I also feel like one thing to, to point out too is uh, to tie to bring to kind of catch us up on the plot is that he finds out about the plan that they're going to make workers from worry free take a drug that turns them into human horse hybrid so they can work harder. Um, but he finds out about this in a meeting with Lyft at a party he gets invited to because he's performed so well. So pulling us slightly back, also I want to say I want to say like what did the power callers actually do? Because it seems like they are still just doing telemarketing. It's just they're telemarketing something different. So what what they're doing is they're doing um, you know this higher tier of telemarketing. So instead of selling direct to consumer, they're selling to businesses, and they're selling to the sort of businesses who would essentially use worry free slave labor. Um, and so there's there's one like really amazing scene where Cash, you know, who's obviously done his homework, manages to get this one um, I think Japanese company to switch to using worry free, which means you know they get to they they have greater profits, lower labor costs. 
And so, I mean, this is what they're doing. And they're also, I believe, selling weapons um, to the military. And it's just like everything you can imagine about the worst, the worst possible jobs, um, the, like the, the, the most morally depraved things you can imagine. And this is what they're doing. Um, and I mean, for me, there are like really strong parallels to what a lot of tech companies are doing now. You see all these um, big tech companies with contracts um, with ICE, Immigrations and Customs Enforcement, or with the, the U.S. military. And it's it's uh yeah it's like it's hard to watch right because when he when um Boots Riley wrote the script I think he started writing in 2012 or something I don't know how much it's changed since then but like in the last few years it's come out that a lot of these big tech companies have these contracts which are really kind of doing the same thing that uh, worry-free uh, power callers are doing but um I mean yeah I think that's like a case of just being really prescient but also the fact that the military industrial complex has been around for a while and it's it may have changed form but it's it hasn't really gone away, and these new tech companies are just like taking part in it. Yeah, and I think the the other thing I, I think that's absolutely right. And I think the other thing I wanted to sort of to bring up as well was that one of the rules in the power caller suite is white voice at all times and white voice only. Um, and so what that kind of made me made me think of, and I might sort of I might throw to you for this as well, Trev. But but like this is also the world of pure classless identity politics, where it's like, oh no, we're empowering the we're empowering like POCs by having them sell weapons or modern-day slave labor. And it gets kind of the same thing as when um, uh, someone tweeted out yesterday, uh, you may disagree with her Brexit deal, but opposing Theresa May is misogynist card. Was somebody doing that as a joke or were they being... No. <laughs> <laughs> was, oh, the, God. It was the, the Women's Equality Party. Wasn't there that thing about wow. like um, a woman being pushed off a, a glass cliff by men? Yeah, that's them. Oh, God. Yeah, there was oh. that one, yeah. Yeah bad but that's that kind of reminded me of that right like it was this it was this classless pure id paul um, and, and i'm trying to think about it can 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 you unpack that a little bit yeah uh because wait one of the because wait one of the when they say you know that you're when you you're you have to sort of you can come into these sort of high status positions right and it's like oh yeah we have like a lot a lot of like women and people of color even in these positions but it's like well we're just representing them among the like cabal of people who are kind of like in these managerial roles making the world worse so it feels like it's it's almost like the when i say like classless identity politics where it's like we're not thinking about the class impacts of what we're actually doing we're just trying to make sure we have good representation within it um i can't remember because i saw the movie a while ago did they hire them because they were um for representation reasons or just because they were the best um, like well like was there any point where they said, "Look at the diversity we have in the power carter suite"? Or I think what, no. What made me think I of it think was so, no. when they were when they talked about yes, you, you is that it's the white voice. It's like the representation th almost through um, transformation and, and and homogenization, and also That's like the, point out, Riley, the way that they also the way that they treat cash. We're like, oh no, of course. Well, we definitely want to hear you rap because we think that's cool. Like the way they talk to cash is so patronizing. Well, yeah, I was going to point out that exactly that, like, even though what you you could you could come away from this from the with the impression like, OK, well, they're good at their job, they're by their equal. But like you the way he he and Mr. Blank, um, Amari Hardwick's character get treated at the party. Yeah, the way that like the way that Steve Lift is so patronizing towards Amari Hardwick's character, the way that they make him rap, all these things like it's very much made clear that like your your acceptance is absolutely contingent. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I agree with that. Like, I feel like they got there due to um, some warped idea of um, meritocracy, but 
it's no matter what they accomplish, they're still kind of just boiled down to that um, essence, like this idea that you're just always going to be that a rapper or a uh, curiosity. Um, I do see that part of it. For yeah. Sure. And, and, and also something that was really interesting, Riley, is, you know, uh, when Amari Hardwick's character and uh, the Mr. Blank uh, is talking with um, with Cash, uh after the rap thing, after they've humiliated him and Cash is uh, is sitting by himself while people are just having an orgy, uh, Amari Hardwick's character comes up to him and he doesn't use his white voice. And he starts talking to him and he's like, you know, you need to take this meeting with Steve Lift. And he's like, don't, you know, don't get in your own head to the point that you cut yourself out of this opportunity. But it's this very, very strange scene because up until that point, they're sort of like been, been acting as though this is normal for them to talk in this completely like dehumanized voice. When this between the, between just the two of them, he's like, it's very obvious, like they're not accepted in the group, and that I feel like was really that was there to be noticed, whether or not people noticed it. You know what I mean? But I felt like I was interested in whether or not you know y'all saw that as well, or if it was just sort of like because I mean, my wife and I were watching, it, and we're just like, yeah, this is this is so deeply uncomfortable the entire time. Yeah, yeah, like like the one thing where I didn't um, fully agree with Riley was the idea that the power suite was kind of created or was meant to um represent the identity politics but i do agree with the idea that once they are there the identity keeps them from ever being like like it's a fake acceptance like they try to act like like i didn't think it was classless the power suite i thought the, the power suite was trying to pretend to be raceless yeah but yeah you yeah, find, that's actually, you yeah, find I, that I'm, I've you been convinced by you now. I no longer agree yeah. with what I said earlier. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And the ra- and they can't get past the race part later on because, you know, no matter how much they try to pretend that, hey, you know, we don't care about what color you are, just the, that you're the best. But, you know, at the party, like you said, they're just like, um, you know, just rap for us, just do this. Or there's, there's, there's a sense that the acceptance is always uh, on a contingent, uh, precarious uh, basis. But one thing I liked about that scene that you uh, pointed out is how the other power caller that's represented by Omari Hardrick was just fully um, committed to selling out. And he was like trying to tell the other guy, listen, don't get in your own head. Don't let racial pride or self-respect or um, class pride keep you from missing out on this opportunity. And I feel like that a lot of neoliberal identity politics is kind of um, based on that, where it's like, you know, you're supposed to not let these things um, stop you from, you know, what, what what's that famous thing? Like more female wardens, you know, like, yeah, like, hire more yeah, 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 yeah. Hire yeah. more female guards. Yeah. 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 I think you, you see something like the exact analog with this, with like, you know, lean in like Sheryl Sandberg's lean in feminism as well, where it's like, okay, you recognize that the structures are oppressive and they're not suited for you and they're deliberately designed to exclude you. But fuck that. Just like lean into the structure and then get, find your way up to the top. Even if it means like stepping over other people of your class on the way. Um, and it's it's like really just like depressing to watch that, I guess. Yeah. And, and then, of course, that leads us to the meeting, which is him telling him, here's my secret plan. Uh, and 
do this do they, a spiral line of, do an enormous line off of a horse plate <laughs> and then when he has to pee he goes to the bathroom and he encounters the the horse dick mutants yeah you with a with a with a with a really big hog on him <laughs> um yeah so, so yeah that's that's where it got let's let's talk the plan uh so uh lift's plan is as we sort of alluded to before is to improve the profitability and just sort of drive growth endlessly of his company uh, by transforming the workers themselves into half horse hybrids uh, who are much stronger uh, and more able to like lift and carry stuff. That was and the weird thing is like this is this is not sort of super far from like the way that Marx wrote because like when Marx was this sort of this weird sort of de- deformation body horror thing with the horse transformation. Because like when Marx was was writing, uh, we're talking about capital. He sort of he was immersed in like um, in Gothic uh, fiction and literature, and so that's why he sort of talks about um, about about specters of communism and this sort of capital as a vampire that sucks the life from living labor and so on. Like critiques of of, of capitalism have used these kind of methods of sort of horror and deformation, like for as long as they've been around, which I thought was very interesting. I think an interesting thing with capitalism is that it has it works off of machines a lot, like literal machines, but also the idea of turning people into machines or extensions of machines. Like people become like beasts of burden, like like uh like the oxen that pulls the plow, like where does the um apparatus or the machine begin and where does the living being uh begin like the oxen is just an extension of the um just it's it because a part of the machine it's just the total machine is like the horse and carriage or the total machine is like the oxen and cart and i feel like assembly lines do that to people like you go from i think marx talks about how people become alienated from the work because they go from something where Say you're a farmer, you know everything about farming from beginning to end, and then you end up getting like a final product. Like, you know, you can point to this and say, hey, I created this. I planted a seed. Or if you're an artisan or a blacksmith, you can point to a sword. Or if you're a cobbler, you can like point to um, this finished product and you have a relationship to the product. You have a relationship to your work where... Once industrialization happens, you get this um, you get this assembly line, and you have one single thing to do in that assembly line. Like you just put like um, the bell on this thing. There's like five hundred um, um, things that come down, and each time one passes by, you just put the bell, and you can't point to something with a sense of pride, saying like you know. I created this or I have a skill or you can't show your kids, hey, this is what daddy did. Like, you know, you just like, hey, do, do you see that one that one stitch on that product? Like, yeah, your, your daddy did that. You know, you don't have that. <laughs> you you, you kind of just become part of a machine. And I think the horses were a great, like they made literal the whole beast of burden. Um, yeah. Or, Definitely. And I think, and the the thing, I mean, it's like, it's so dehumanizing, but what it really does is it makes, it completely turns someone into just a worker. Like their whole identity is as someone to produce some, you know, some goods. And all they really get from that is just the conditions for being able to sustain themselves. They, 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 you know, they, they're able to reproduce themselves and that's all they become. They become a worker. And what's really scary about this is the fact that 
Steve Lift is someone who just has the power to do that. He can look at a human being and see, ah, this is someone who's going to give me, you know, this much profit. And then he has the ability, he has the power, he has the resources to actually turn this person into just like the, the literal manifestation of a beast of burden, like you were saying. Um, and the, the thing about the power, which um, this might actually speed up the, the plot summary a bit, is um, the fact that when when uh, Cash is like, you know, I'm going to expose you, this is like, this is so fucked up, and he tries to stop it, nothing happens. Because at one point, you know, Cash goes on TV and is like, oh, you guys need to ca call your congressman, tell them that this is happening. And then the, the, real, the, right, the next scene is um, a shot of... Uh, you know, a Democratic and a Republican senator, like kind of like shaking hands with Steve Lift and being like, "Congratulations, what a great plan!" And I like that scene. I mean, that itself was like such a such a really political uh, statement, and I thought it was just brilliant. I was so happy that he did that. I absolutely like. I was I was telling Riley after I saw the movie, I'm like, "This is a thing where really it was like I'm very glad this movie was written by a communist because he, he does the thing, you know." Cash does the thing where he's like, the authorities have to stop this. And what immediately happens right after, like you just said, Wendy, stock price goes is up. it's just basically, yeah, the stock price goes up because it's like, no, this is this is how the system's supposed to work. And having that illustrated in such a way in a film, I was like, I, I was sitting there in the theater. And I was like, wow, this is, this is very, very subversive. And I'm really enjoying it because like, it's not an appeal to authority. The idea is that the only authority is, uh, the, the, the only authority that you can respect is the workers organizing. And that, I mean... It, it, it also it also made me think about slavery, like like literal slavery. Like you know, there was this thing where people, because it was fueling like the progress of the country and capitalism, and uh, by the dehumanization of these horses, it was adding an extra level of comfort to people's lives. People got okay with this dehumanization like pretty quick. Like you know, he exposed it, and society just you know got numb to it really fast uh and the exposing didn't do anything okay maybe think that's probably what like slavery was like like you know um you could expose all the horrors of like uh african slavery and the transatlantic slave trade and like the first abolitionists probably ran up against that a lot like you know what well look, well, look at these horrors and people were like oh you know we could live with it you know uh i saw this article it was pretty interesting uh it made the case that the whole professional managerial uh, system that came up under industrialization was actually um, created under uh, slavery. Like, basically, slavery was the first professional managerial um, quota-driven, like all the things they'd be taken to take for granted in modern workforce and industrialization was actually a case of um, people just taking techniques that were created and perfected under slavery because um, in slave times, that was the only real thing that had that type of professional managerial like structure. There wasn't, it was like artisan times. There weren't really factories yet. There weren't really offices as we know them now as workplaces. Like, you know, that came later. And uh, the article made a pretty good case. I wish I could remember the name of it, but that, that basically it was just literally slavery, but just transferred over to, um, white people yeah i feel like the analogy to slavery is actually really useful because what it does illustrate is that um like like you guys were saying earlier an appeal to authority won't help the the people who are oppressed under the system they need to be the ones to kind of like rise up and to you know to change things because otherwise like the people who are who have uh, attained power in the current system why would they buck the system because it works for them and they're 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 basically happy with it and so you know you need people to collectively organized, kind of like what they're trying to do with the union, 
to put a stop to it. Um, and I guess, like, I don't know, Riley, if you want to talk about the last scene or if that's too much of a spoiler, but the climactic <laughs> final battle. Go for it. Yeah. Go for yeah. It. Okay. So, I mean, this scene, it, it, it actually, like, I, I cried several times, um, uh, kind of loudly too. But anyway, so there's this. So basically, the the telemarketers who've been on on strike, like, they're they're still on strike even when um, cash is becoming a power caller. And the the police have been cracking down on them really hard, right? And like every day, they send they send a ton of people to try to like to break the break the strike. But then um, when Cash kind of like has this big realization, and he realizes that you know this whatever worry free is doing, it's not going to be put, it's not going to be stopped by calling your congressperson. So then he says, okay, I'm going to join my my colleagues on on the picket line. And he also comes up with this like pretty brilliant plan where. Um, eventually, he enlists the help of the the horse people who have been, who he's managed to free, and um, after after some of the uh, protesters have been you know roughed up by the cops, the he he kind of like um, blows open a, a door I think where like he he uh, there's like an alarm that he um, figures out how to de- deactivate, and the like half human half horse people come out, and they end up on the side of the workers as they should, and there's a scene where. Um, uh, squeeze is like you know standing next to one of these horse people and um they kind of like look at each other and there's this growing recognition that they're on the same side and so squeeze kind of takes his hand and he like makes a fist and he says same struggle and that just like that just like killed me because what it really reminded me of is um migrant workers and how there's often this idea that um you know migrant workers are brought in by uh, by the boss to try to like lower wages and that there's no way to you know bridge the gap and that migrant workers should be seen as the enemy but that's not necessarily true sometimes migrant workers can be even more militant and can be the ones to really like uh, force some sort of change in workplace conditions and I mean like watching that scene it just completely reminded me of this the fact that um, workers are often divided by capital but they don't have to be and if they find a way to kind of like bridge the divide then they can resist so much more effectively okay um i would say like my final impression is like there's this scene at the end where he's kind of talking to the horse like like the horse is like uh stupid and and the horse has to remind him like hey i'm from the i'm from the bay like you know i was once a a human and i think that's kind of like what capitalism can kind of do. It can dehumanize workers to the point where you forget like the person's even a human, even when you're advocating for them. Like, you know, whether it was abolitionists who kind of were fighting for slaves, but still thought of them as like dumb animals and, you know, forget that this person was, you know, a human being at one point, you know, uh, they had a home country. They weren't, you know, uh, created to be, uh, slaves or whether it's the migrant worker who people just kind of see as just this fruit picking machine like even the ones who ostensibly are on their side and fighting for them and i thought that was like a nice touch about how sometimes even the people who can uh be so-called fighting the good fight can still fall into the trap of forgetting the um humanity because that's what it trains us to do capitalism is just accept the dehumanization of uh People. Yeah. Uh, so my concluding thoughts on the film are: I think it came out at this like brilliant moment, right? Like this is this is a time when people are talking about unionizing and class politics, and especially in the tech industry, where um, in the last few months, and this is something that I talked about on 
an earlier episode of Trash Future, but we've seen um, the rise of pretty militant actions by workers against their companies. Uh, and most recently, the, the in the games industry, Game, game Workers Unite, which is a union that uh, recently affiliated with IWGB in the UK. And the games industry is another one of these industries where for a long time there hasn't really been any unionization because people are thought of as not workers, but as, you know, part of a team, part of a family. They do it because they love it and therefore, like, they're not workers. But then the people in the industry, they they know they're being exploited. They're not happy with their conditions. They're starting to resist and fight back as a collective. And that's just so inspirational. We're starting to see the beginnings of this in, you know, in Silicon Valley and the big tech companies. And I mean, I, I really hope that people who are working at these companies watch this film because like, I mean, I watched it already, like already having like pretty um, radical politics, but I watched it and I was like, wow, like if, if I didn't, I think I would have definitely like like become a communist after watching it because it's it's like if you if you can relate to the kind of workplace conditions that are depicted then it is quite a um a compelling vision and this idea that you know we don't have to just sit back and let the authorities take care of us there's actually something there's room for agency and there's room for us to act and take control of our lives and to make this better world ourselves i think that's such such an important message yeah i think that's quite right i i Loved the film. Um, I'm really excited to see how this inspires other films that are like this. I agree with you, Wendy, that I, I'm, I'm very happy it came out in this moment because I feel like to see something that's so unabashedly socialist makes me really happy. Like that Ashley talks about beasts of burden and owning the means of production and like, you know, the only ones who can save us are ourselves, but like does it in a way that's funny, that's memorable, that you don't feel like you're being preached to. I'm really, really appreciative of that. I agree with you, Trevor, from earlier that uh, you made the point that in a way it's so quickly paced that it's almost like you want it to to, to slow down a little and, and, and be able to learn a little bit more about some of the people. Like I definitely feel like uh, Danny Glover's character would have been interesting to learn more about. I definitely think that uh, that Tessa Thompson's character, uh, Detroit, his girlfriend, would have been interesting to learn more about. I mean, we do see some of the scenes with her at her uh, her gallery opening. Um, also, another character, I feel like Squeeze, Stephen Yun's character, that would have been interesting because he tells a story about how he helped organize um, the the sign twirlers union in Los Angeles. You know, you know what? Can and I like, just interject here? I've heard that he was based on an actual IWW organizer who's active in California, like a, like a wall. Oh, no yeah, yeah, yeah. So you know, I agree. It would have been amazing to learn more about him. One aspect about learning more about um, uh, Detroit, I found it interesting that she was critiquing um, you know his white voice, but then they show her her exhibit and she's putting on a british accent and i felt like it was kind of trying to say like everybody kind of uh sells out in their own way and doesn't kind of realize it and that was an example of something that i would have liked to have seen unpacked uh more like, like just to give a concrete example of how they kind of just brush past things and i find that's interesting to her fake British voice for a second. Oh yeah, the whole then that whole scene is a, also a great critique of um, like art that's supposed to be sort of very high concept and to sort of make a point, but it's still just being sold to rich people to sort of assuage the exactly. Feelings. Like that's yeah. like that's that's something I bang on about all the time, and I was very I was so happy to see you know the same critique of Freeze that I want to make all the time as well. Well, yeah, and she's having to basically get abused. She's yeah. having to like make the audience abuse her in order to be taken seriously. And uh, yeah, and it's weird because like what you described, it makes Cash incredibly uncomfortable and he's basically critiquing her. But then she, she, she at this point has left him because she can't stand the fact that he's crossing the picket line. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. She can see how he's selling out 
but is unable to see in uh, herself, you know, which is I find was an interesting thing I would have liked to see um, unpacked a little bit. Absolutely. For sure. I mean, yeah, that's so, I mean, all saying. in all, though, I, I, I love this film and I'm excited. To, I'm hoping that Boots, because I, I don't know, uh, Boots Riley's been around for a long time. Even the, the Coup have been along, around for a long time. I, I'm always amazed the Coup had an album that was scheduled to come out on September 11th, 2001, and the cover of their album was them blowing up the World Trade Center. Hmm. Yeah. So, like, needless to say, they've been on the radical side of politics for forever. So, it's it's kind of amazing. And just the idea that, that, that Boots Riley from the Coup has directed a movie and it's really good and been really well received is so mind blowing to me that uh, I'm very excited to see more. Yeah, well, this is one of those examples of how it could have been longer, I think. I would love to have seen that unpacked more as well, but it is exciting. I want to see what Boots Riley does next. Uh, Hussein? Uh, I'm looking forward to actually finishing this movie, Uh, (laughs) (laughs) um, especially the stuff about the horse sticks. Um, That's really like the main thing I took from this. Um, I I understand that maybe there's a lot of praxis in here, that maybe this is a very interesting and good, actually good critique of late capitalism. Um, but I'm just going to be honest with you. I am looking forward to the horse sticks. <laughs> well, that's the thing. Like, it's ordinarily we are a, a comedy show that does comedy. Uh, but I think when we're just talking about something we like that already is a comedy, it's pretty hard to do more comedy. So we've just ended up, and I think that's kind of what I wanted to do with it: having a more like straightforward, serious conversation about a, just a very good movie, which is a, a nice way to spend a Sunday, in my opinion. It is possible for us to like things. Yes. Very, um, very rarely, but on occasion. Yes, we occasionally will like things. So like my, my, my favorite thing, my sort of final impression is, I thought like that there was this sort of relentless underlying critique of like capitalist rationality that was sort of uh, flowing throughout the whole thing, where it was like, where all of these sort of, where you can see all of these decisions that are sort of rational to a calculating actor are sort of patently irrational if you take a sort of longer view of the world. You can see it when when Cash elects to sort of initially to sort of not join the union and instead choose sort of pers- like personal um, promotion to sort of fulfill his sort of short-term material needs. It's like, well, actually, like this is just going against your long-term needs. Or the idea that, you know, that that the um, that Lyft is going to transform everyone into a horse. Because eventually, right, the idea is that this one company will employ almost everyone in the world, and then they'll all be horses. And then it will be Stephen Lyft, and he'll be living on a planet with just a bunch of other, just a bunch of horses, essentially. Like he wants to make BoJack Horseman world real. Um, and but and what I also the other thing that I was thinking of, right, and sort of I think of this quite a bit. You know, it's if it it's it's not always required to pay people. It's not always required to pay people enough. And whenever they can, capital always will tr- will elect to pay its workers nothing over something. You know. And 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 they'll always tr- and if there was a way that they could, um, if there was a way that they could that they could actually create a sort of dumber, stronger class of laborer, we have to remember they will do it. They'll find a way to do it, and then they'll do it. They're not sort of bound by the same compunctions that you and I are, because they're just these. They it is essentially a form of like psychopathy, where they're like, no, it's growth at all costs, growth at any cost, and so that's why I always just think I'm of. It, it helps you sort of be so skeptical of the motives of capital, I think, if that makes any sense. To know that like your employer would turn you into a stupid horse if they could and it was if they could make it legal to. There are very few things stopping them from doing that. Everybody, thank you very much uh, for calling in today. This has been a, uh, a delightful conversation. Um, yeah, yeah, thanks for having yeah, us. It was fun. Yeah, uh, I was sorry to bother all of you. 
I can't believe I made it through the entire <laughs> oh, episode. Oh. I made it this far. I made oh, it this far, God. and I only did it now. I earned it. Um, now you, so, now, now uh, you can take off your anonymous mask. <laughs> <laughs> so uh wendy where can people find you online uh, i'm at dell system on twitter don't ask me why <laughs> you had your dell system uh and um do you do you have anything anything to plug you you're, you're still writing that blog as well uh, so i'm writing a book right now called abolish silicon valley awesome yeah When's it coming out? Um, hopefully sometime in 2020. We'll see. <laughs> okay, so get those pre-orders up for Abolish Silicon Valley. Uh, and Trev, where can people find you on the internet? Um, you can find me on Twitter at uh, Ricky Rawls, no uh, underscore. But you can also find uh, Champagne Sharks podcast any place where you listen to podcasts. You know, iTunes, all that stuff. Just Google Champagne Sharks and... You'll find it on Sound, SoundCloud, iTunes, and Stitcher, and all those places. Hell yeah, uh, Nathan Hussein. People know where to find us. Yeah, I mean, you, you <laughs> can. I mean, you could probably find me in prison once Canon arrests me, QAnon arrests me. So, <laughs> <laughs> so write, so write me, write me letters, send me movies that maybe I'll watch in time. I don't know. <laughs> um, and in fact, if you want to support us, we have a Patreon. There is a second episode of this show available. Um, on on Patreon, uh, it's five dollars a month. It's uh, very fun. I suggest you subscribe. Additionally, if you were so inclined, you could commodify your descent with a T-shirt from Little Comrade. Perhaps you could get the entire script of uh, "Story to Bother You" printed on a T-shirt. I'm sure Edie could figure out how to do that. And uh, finally, our theme song is "Here We Go" by Ginseng, uh, and you can find it on Spotify. And I was slightly lying because that wasn't finally because we're also uh, producing like mugs or something for some reason they say we, we're gonna have them. a link we're gonna have a, li- uh, a link in the show notes for some merch for uh end of year last minute gifts if you've got somebody who this likes a lot of annoying Christmas. podcasts this is coming out on believe Christmas. Me, well they might give gifts at the end of the year you don't know <laughs> riley maybe they have non-traditional gift giving habits all right long story short if you want a mug that says soup on it in the style of the Supreme logo, you can buy it from us. I wonder what we actually have made them. I wonder what merch we're going to make to commemorate Hussein's insane doctor tweet. Maybe we'll have figured it out by the time this episode comes out. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> All right, everybody. Uh, I'm going to uh, call it there and I'm going to say good night and Merry Christmas, I think, depending on when this comes out. Yeah.